Hello and welcome to the Overcoming Life Podcast. I'm your host, Nishan Garrett, and this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We have been talking about Paul's epistle to the saints in Rome. And we have been talking about the law of headship, the one versus the many, the success and failure of two men. And unfortunately, common theology has taught that all who are in Adam uh, have died, but that basically people die because of their own sin. And theologians have argued that Christ merely offered a justification of life to all men. Um, That is to say, in the comparison between Adam and Christ, while the scripture says that in Adam all died, uh, there's been some twisting with regards to the justification of life through the righteousness of Jesus, through his righteous act, which says that has been applied to all men. And I think we have to, I think the idea behind this is that people in some way want to defend the image of God in some ways, that why would God allow all men, why would he put this injustice onto all men that all men die? No, men die because of their own sin. Not quite. So we're going to be talking about the apparent injustice of God. And the fact is, that is, it is unjust. It is unjust that all men would suffer as the result of one man's sin. So even the divine law says this in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. This law is cited again in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. In spite of this, God holds children accountable to the third and fourth generation, according to Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. And in Romans chapter 4, we learn of imputed sin and imputed righteousness. Adam's sin was imputed to others, causing them to pay the penalty for sin, which is mortality. Now, many theologians have wrestled with this great issue, but have been able, unable to understand how a just God can unjustly make the children pay for the sins of Adam. And their solution, quote unquote, is too limited in its scope because... If only those who respond to the word of conciliation are given life, then the injustice upon the bulk of humanity remains unsolved and unresolved. Neither can it be said that it was their own fault for not accepting Christ, for the the vast majority of them throughout the millennia never had even the slightest particle of the opportunity to hear of Christ. Okay, so somehow, someway, all those to whom Adam's sin was imputed, must also have the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. This seems impossible to the average Christian. We seem to not understand and be able to fathom this as a reality. But with God, all things are possible. In fact, God specializes in the impossible. And really the key is understanding two things. The first is that it is true that only those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved Secondly, God will make a way to ensure that all men will indeed believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he is a God of the impossible. He is a God of the impossible. We know 
that not all men believe in their lifetime, unfortunately. But there is no biblical statement prohibiting men from believing after they have died. So in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says, Merely, and inasmuch as it is appointed, as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. But judgment does not prohibit men from repenting. In fact, the whole purpose of God's law is to cause men to repent by the means of judgment. This then is the key to resolving the difficulties in Paul's epistle. Many are saved, yet as so through fire. And he says this verse in uh, 1 Corinthians, I believe chapter 3. Because they will have to experience the fire of God in order to be saved. No one will be given life without responding to the word of conciliation. But yet all will respond, each in his own order and each in its own time. Subheading, the depths of God's love. When Paul speaks of conciliating the many and all men in the fifth chapter of Romans, he is describing the effects of the divine love that he has already defined earlier. Whereas the man, the love of man is normally limited to his friends, the love of God extends to his enemies as well. And it is for this reason, Paul says, that God was in Christ concealing conciliating the world, not waiting for them to become his friends, but dying for them while they were still enemies. The world and even the church scarcely appreciates or comprehends the breadth, the length, the width, the depth of such love. In fact, the church doctrine of divine retribution proves its lack of country, excuse me, comprehension. For it denies any beneficial effects of that divine love upon those who die without having conciliated God in return. And basically, he's saying, guys, to all these unreconciled ones, many teach in the church the divine deadline is each man's point of death, that you can no longer choose to repent, you can no longer choose to worship Jesus and to bow down before his feet and to recognize him as king and lord over your life after you have died. So God's demonstration of love is suddenly transformed into a demonstration of divine wrath. And those who refuse outright to conciliate God in return are said to be tormented for eternity in unimaginable pain and torture, while those who never had heard of Christ, are sautéed lightly in a mere one million degrees. By such theology, divine love is not so divine, guys. In fact, divine love will only save a few, which makes it, to be honest, a little less divine. Having failed in large part through the contrarian will of man, it is as if two nations were at war, having irreconcilable differences, and one wise and loving king, God, decided to sue for peace, knowing that it takes two to make a fight. This loving king had been wronged, but decided to pay the law's penalty for himself. Forgiving the wrong and satisfying the demand of the law, he then sends ambassadors to the other side, carrying a white flag, bearing the message of peace and conciliation. I no longer hold your trespass against you. I no longer hold your transgressions against you. 
The result of such love is to cause a few on the other side to lay down their arms and join the side of the gracious king. But then we discover that there was a deadline to respond, after which time love is replaced by the wrath of a rejected lover. Only then is it clear that the king's conciliation was really disguised as an ultimatum. Love was only temporary. Love failed to secure the desired end, having been thwarted by the will of man. Men's theology insists that God remains a God of love, and yet he is somehow forced by his own law to incarcerate and torture the unreconciled ones for eternity. The idea of God's love, helpless in the face of his own law, being forced to torture the unreconciled once they have passed the deadline, sums up the knowledge of God held by a great proportion and a great portion of the church. Such a theology is based upon some false assumptions. It assumes that death is a deadline for repentance, whereas Paul says every knee will bow. It is plain that only a few knees will bow to Christ during their lifetime on earth. So it is equally plain that the rest of those knees must bow after they have died. Furthermore, every tongue will confess that he is Lord, and Paul tells us that no man can confess that he is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Further, these knees will bow and these tongues will confess to the glory of God the Father. Where is the glory in a confession extracted by torture? What glory is it to force a sinner to his knees and wrench him from a fiend confession? Skip from a fiend confession. It is further assumed that the divine law demands a burning hell for unbelievers, when in fact the law demands burn for burn. Only in cases where a man has burned someone else without repenting, even such Judgment is limited because the basic principle of the law demands retribution in kind only. Man alone extends such retribution to eternity. The word translated eternity in the scripture is nearly always an aeonian, which pertains to an eon, an age, that is a period of time, both having a beginning and an end. While man may extend this time of judgment into eternity, God does not. Furthermore, God's justice proceeds out of his character of love, and so the purpose of justice is to correct rather than to destroy. Divine retribution is not an admission of failure to rehabilitate. For love, guys, love never fails. In fact, if the love of God fails to bring even one man ultimately into the fullness of the statue of Christ, then love has failed to reach its accomplished goal. Sin misses the mark. If God's love misses the goal and sin is what misses the mark, is God a sinner? Is God a failure? The answer is a thousand times no. So let's talk about the question of free will then. People excuse God for unending divine retribution, that is, eternal hell and damnation, by insisting that man has done it to himself by his own free will. But this is inconsistent with theology. One man's sin was opposed upon the many, apart from any decision by their own free will. 
God imputed Adam's sin to all succeeding generations, even though they had not sinned in the similitude of Adam's sin. Man's mortality is proof of this. If the law of imputation of Adam's sin must affect all men negatively, negatively, how can men apply the same law unequally to Christ's conciliatory work on the cross? The law judges impartially and with equality, that is, with equity. The will of man was not consulted before imputing Adam's sin to all. It's not like you had a choice to be like, hmm, do you want to take Adam's sin upon yourself? Would you like his death and mortality to be imputed onto you? And you said, hmm, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good choice. I'm going to do that. No, the, the will of man was not consulted either before the imputing of Adam's sin or before the imputing of Christ's righteousness to all. Both were acts of God alone. Hence, God was in Christ, conciliating the world by the standard of divine love alone. And by such love, Christ dies, not for his friends alone, but also for his enemies. And this is the whole point of distinguishing man's love from God's love. Many men will die for a friend or family member, but Christ has died for the ungodly and even for those who hated him. Is there no lasting beneficial effect of such love upon the ones who died without conciliating God in return? Is God so helpless? Is he a God who weeps while torturing people in order to conform to a law that would go against his loving nature? Does God and does the law of God demand something that is contrary to the will, mind, character, and nature of God? No. The law is the very expression of his character. And hence, the law is based entirely, founded entirely upon love. On love hangs the entire law and the prophets. In fact, God is love. The law is based upon his love, guys, and it is designed to correct the lawbreaker with a heart of love and compassion for this person. The conciliation will have its full effect because it's not based upon the will of man, but it's based upon God's will alone. And some people would say, well, brother, then what about our free will? Hey, you have no free will. Only God's will is free. You have, yes, authority. Yes, you have choice. But at the end, you will be subject to the one who is sovereign. You are not sovereign. You are not in control. God is in control. And until you understand, until we understand and come to a realization of that, we will continue to fight God thinking that our will is greater than his will, which is not the case. In fact, free will and the idea of free will usurps the authority and usurps the authority of the sovereignty of God. It makes God a God. Excuse me. It makes man a God unto himself. You see the issue with that when God becomes a man unto himself? Man's opposition will not succeed in the end because his will is not stronger than God's. He's not capable in the end of resisting a perfect love like God's. Do you guys know that perfect love can change the most hardened heart? All of man's resistance is time-based and therefore limited in duration. The authority that men enjoy based upon the dominion mandate is no match for the sovereignty of God. That is to say, yes, you are given authority for a certain period of time. It is limited. Your 
authority is limited to the sovereignty of God. There is no force on earth that can prevent the divine plan from being fulfilled. And of course, the devil does not win in the end. The law of God is an expression of love emanating from his very being. Hence, it is described as fire, even as the baptism of fire is to us the saturation of his character and his essence. There is no fire that God uh, has that can be separated from his love. For God will be God, and he must always be true to himself. While the lake of fire is indeed a place of divine judgment, it is where all men learn the character of God. Even believers today are being trained by the means of the baptism of fire. In fact, in Mark chapter 9, verse 49, it says that all will be salted with fire. We are trained now in order to better attain a better and earlier resurrection, of course. And you guys have to understand in 2 Timothy, we read that he is a savior of all men, especially of those who believe. This fire is also the glory of God, which came down upon Mount Sinai and which will ultimately cover the whole earth, which is, of course, speaking of his law and his righteous judgments, not a physical burning of the earth or destruction of the earth. God will be glorified and every creature in heaven and on earth will be found praising him when the four beasts finally say amen. And I, to that, say amen and hope that you, in fact, also with us say amen. Blessings to you guys, and we will see you next episode.